0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In our perspective, in our entire program, indeed, I want to think with you about Christianity. Christianity as a worldview. In so many ways, in our culture today in America, and really, indeed, in Europe and throughout much of the world, Christianity is significantly under attack. And much of it is actually within those who call themselves Christians. I have begun to adopt the phrase genuine biblical Christianity rather than evangelical Christianity. Because even the term evangelical has become slippery and ill-defined. People aren't sure what that means anymore. So in my own uh, way in which I talk, in some of my writing, as well as even on this program, Issues in Perspective, I've begun to adopt the phrase genuine biblical Christianity. And I believe, therefore, that Christianity needs to be focused on as a biblically-centered worldview. It's not only a personal relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a worldview. It is an entire way of thinking, covering not only theology, but how to think about ethics, history, science, literature, and everything else. Because God has revealed himself verbally In the Bible, Christians have the answers to the most penetrating questions of life. James Sire, whom I've had on our campus to give a series of lectures, identifies seven basic questions that any worldview should answer. Let me summarize those. Question one, what is prime reality? What is really real? What's beyond the physical? What is real? And of course, this references God. Number two, what is the nature of external reality? What's the nature of that outside of ourselves, of the physical world, of the universe? What's the nature of that? Did it just occur? Is it a part of random choice? Is it a part of random acts? Is it randomness? Or is it design? Is God the creator? Thirdly, what is a human being? What makes a human being valuable? Why are there humans? Where do they come from? What's the value and purpose of human beings? Number four, what happens to a person at death, which I think is one of the most penetrating of all questions that any worldview must answer. Number five, why is it possible to know anything of all at all? This is a question in philosophy that we call epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know what knowledge is? How do we know what certainty is? How then, number six, do we know what is right and what is wrong? That's a question of ethics. And finally, number seven, in a worldview list of questions, what is the meaning of history? Does it just happen? Or is there purpose? What's our philosophy of history? Is it linear? Is history like a line, clear beginning, clear ending? Or is it kind of circular? Is it, is it like a, a ladder or like an escalator? It's progress. Or is it a Marxian view of history, on and on? What's the meaning of history? How do you think about that? Human beings must come to terms with these questions, sometime during their lives. To discover one's worldview is a significant step towards self-awareness, self-knowledge, and may I add, self-understanding. So in what way is Christianity a genuine worldview? By the phrase, as I meant earlier and discussed briefly in the program today, Genuine biblical Christianity, by that phrase, I mean the faith clearly revealed in God's Word, the Bible, and validated through human history. Using these above-seven questions, let me examine biblical Christianity with you as a worldview. What's primality? The Bible says it's God. Biblical Christianity views God as he is revealed in the Bible, and one of those central truths is the doctrine of the Trinity— it separates biblical Christianity from all other worldviews, including current Christian theological liberalism. The Bible teaches in Deuteronomy 6.4 that God is one. Yet from the New Testament, it's clear that God consists of three persons in that oneness, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Church has always affirmed this doctrine as orthodox, but wrestling with its theological and philosophical implications has been difficult. Especially in the early church, that struggle produced heresy, as it continues today. I would cite Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism as examples. The ancient church of the 3rd and 4th centuries was plagued with false teaching that challenged the deity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Whether it was the teachings of Arius, who denied Christ's deity, or others who regarded the Father as being supreme and the Spirit and Son as subordinate to the Father, all those were declared to be heresy. In order to preserve the oneness of God, others argued that Jesus was a man who was adopted to be the Son of God. Thus, he's not eternally the Son. Others contended that there was one God revealed himself in one of three modes, as the Father, or the Son, or the Spirit. The critical question has always been, what does Scripture teach? More specifically, what precise descriptive words will guard the church against heresy when it comes to the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. The biblical teaching on God as Trinity argues that we must always separate the terms essence and person. They are not synonyms. Essence is what makes God God. Attributes such as the omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience of God are involved here. Person is a term that defines the distinctions within that one essence. Thus, we can correctly say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, while maintaining that they're one and inseparable in being. Yet the difference between each can be grounded only in relational Father, Son, and Spirit and functional differences. I would refer you to Ephesians chapter 1. Any language that results in the Son or the Spirit's subordination to the Father is simply unacceptable. Thus, definitionally, the Trinity is one God of three persons whose difference is relational and functional, not essential. We do not have three gods or three modes of God. We have one God. And again, Ephesians 1 illustrates that truth. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals. Each member of the Godhead is intimately involved in the drama of salvation. We thus follow Paul and praise the Trinitarian God of grace like he does in Ephesians 1. God is also revealed in Scripture as the creator and sustainer of life. As prime reality, God creates ex nihilo, and then sustains all that he creates. God is a God of truth, and his revelation, the written word, is truth. He's a personal God, who seeks intimacy and fellowship with his creatures. Therefore, atheism, pantheism, polytheism are not viable options for understanding God as prime reality. Secondly, what about Jesus? Without question, the defining issue of biblical Christianity is Jesus Christ. Only a Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, can provide a complete salvation for humanity. He must be fully human to be our substitute for sin. He must be fully God to be our perfect substitute for sin, the Lamb of God. For that reason, biblical Christianity has always taught that Jesus is both God and man, the God-man. How do his deity and his humanity in one person relate to each other? For he is both God and man in one person. Both natures are joined in a miraculous way, so that neither is damaged, diminished, or impaired. He is then undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person without any confusion of the two natures. In an absolute sense, he is the God man. Therefore, when describing Jesus, any choice of words that diminishes his deity or his humanity is incorrect and heretical. Only words that preserve both his complete deity and his complete humanity are acceptable. A complete salvation demands it. Faith in the God man, Jesus Christ, Procures it. How then does Christianity, genuine biblical Christianity, look at salvation? Biblical Christianity declares that humans are born sinners and inherit the guilt and corruption of Adam. For when Adam sinned, all sinned. That's what Paul explained in Romans 5. Therefore, the fundamental problem of the human race is not political, social, economic, or psychological. It is spiritual. Following the anticipation by the Apostle Paul in Romans and Galatians, the Bible defines the solution to the human problem of sin as the free grace gospel offered in Jesus Christ. God's grace is thus absolutely essential for human salvation, and that grace is magnified in Jesus. How does one appropriate God's grace in Jesus? It is only appropriated to your life by faith faith in him, and his finished work on Calvary's cross and his resurrection from the dead. Because God is just and holy, he demands payment for sin. Further, any human action or work to merit God's favor in salvation is inadequate. Indeed, Isaiah 64.6 says, All human righteousness is as filthy rags. This situation, therefore, appears hopeless. But because of the hopeless human condition and because of his love, God sent the second person of the Trinity to add to his deity humanity and die on the cross as our substitute. God's just demands are thus met, and we appropriate the finished work through faith. We therefore become his children by adoption into his family with all the rights, benefits, and privileges intact. For that reason, any worldview— that adds something to faith contradicts the Bible. Each worldview that I have dealt with in my writing, in my teaching, whether the world's religions or cults, declare that human works in some form are necessary to merit the favor of God. God's word is very clear that no human work can merit salvation. In terms of salvation, any teaching that adds to or substitutes for The finished work of Jesus Christ is what the Apostle Paul calls another gospel, and it is regarded, therefore, as heretical. Now, this leads me to the fourth category of a worldview, that of ethics. Ethical behavior is tied to your worldview. There is no question about that. Whether one worships the gods of the world religions or the heretical god of the cults, worldview determines ethical behavior. The thesis of this section is that biblical Christianity roots ethics in God's moral law revealed in his word. Erwin Lutzer, a favorite writer of mine, makes this compelling argument. If naturalism, there is no God, is false, and if theism is true, there is a God. Therefore, God is responsible for all that is. His revelation is possible. And if revelation is possible, he reveals himself, then absolute standards are possible, should the deity choose to make them known. Has God made these standards known? The resounding answer of biblical Christianity is yes. He has chosen to reveal himself in his Son through his creation and through his word. And we know about the Son through the word of God. These propositional truths form the basis for ethical absolutes. Well, what are these propositional truths that constitute the Christian ethical framework? Let me suggest a couple. God's moral revelation in his word is really an expression of his own nature. He is holy. Therefore, he insists that his human creatures also be holy. If they do not, judgment follows. Hence the vital nature of Jesus' substitutionary atonement. Appropriating that atoning work by faith makes us holy and therefore acceptable to God. That same argument is made about God's ethical standards of truth, beauty, love, life, sexuality, and so on. Secondly, in terms of this ethical framework, God's moral and ethical system consists of more than external conformity to his moral code. It centers on conformity with internal issues of motivation and personal attitudes. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount presses this point. The ethical standard of prohibiting adultery, for example, involves more than just the external act and obeying that. It also involves lusting with the heart after a woman. The ethical standard of prohibiting murder involves more than the external act. It involves a standard of bitterness and hatred and anger in your heart. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5. That's why, finally, in this matter of ethics, God provides the absolute criteria for determining the value of humanity, because each is arbitrary and relative, physical, economic, mental, social, cultural criteria are all inadequate for assigned value to human beings. Your physical makeup, your economic standing, your mental ability, none of those are valid criteria. God creates human beings in his image, and that establishes the first and absolute criteria for assigning value. We are valuable as human beings because God created us in his image. Being in his image means that we resemble God. Humans possess self-consciousness, self-will, moral responsibility. In intellect, emotion, and will, we resemble God. What was lost in the fall was righteousness, holiness, knowledge. These are renewed in Christ. Being in God's image also means we represent God. God's purpose in creating human beings is functional. We have the responsibility of dominion over his world and of being fruitful and multiplying. Humans represent God as his steward over his world. That concept is emphasized in Genesis 2, reiterated in Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. Humans are God's vice-regents over his creation with the power to control, regulate, and harness its potential. The fall did not abolish this stewardship. It enhanced it because Satan is the usurper of human role as steward, and the enemy of humanity in this dominion status. Man lives out of harmony with himself and with nature. Created to rule, humans find that the crown has fallen from their bow jesus christ restores that in jesus our stewardship responsibility and dominion status in its perfection is restored and in my judgment we will see that in its fullness in the millennial kingdom of the lord jesus christ finally in this itemization of christianity as a worldview, let me make a comment about history Past historical perspectives offer little help today. The ancient Greeks adhered to a cyclical philosophy of history that saw history as a series of repetitive cycles, the old idea that history repeats itself. The religions of Hinduism, Buddhism, and the amorphous New Age movement, with their common emphasis on reincarnation, all view history in exactly the same manner. The common element of all of these is an absence of hope and meaning and purpose. Other approaches to history are inadequate as well. The 18th century Enlightenment in Europe saw history through the grid of progress. The scientific revolution of the preceding century, the 1600s, and the certainty of constructing a science of man created optimism about humanity, and it viewed human perfectibility as imminent and possible. But destroyed by the carnage of the 20th century, two world wars and the Holocaust, the view of progress is no longer viable. Not many people believe in that as a philosophy of history. Modern existentialism or even postmodernism offer no meaning to history except individual autonomy and choice. Biblical Christianity offers another approach to history, one rooted in God's revelation, one that gives hope and solid confidence for the future. That approach to history has four elements. First, the Bible calls for a worldview that rejects the cyclical model of history. The ancient Hebrews saw history as a line, with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Creation marked the initiation of history with God creating the universe ex nihilo. The Old Testament evidences God revealing Himself to men and women through many means, while the New Testament demonstrates God's power and His purposes through miracles and the sign gifts. The greatest revolution, revelation, of course, the incarnation of Jesus, bifurcates history, and when he returns, Christ will bring history to an end. For then, the Christian, as a Christian looks at history, its linear, its purpose, its meaning is clear, and it's a history filled with hope, all wrapped around the second coming of Jesus. Secondly, to the Christian, approaching history is a deep-seated commitment to God's sovereignty, Daniel 4, verses 17 and 25 both affirm in the message to Nebuchadnezzar that God rules in the affairs of men, seeking the counsel of no one. The Old Testament declares God's sovereignty that entails overruling even the evil deeds of men so that his purposes can be achieved. The narrative of Joseph in Genesis details this. He even says as he is meeting with his brothers, after throughout the book and the end chapters of Genesis, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, God's purpose was to preserve life, and Joseph was the means to doing that. And as he explains this to his brothers, he says, you guys meant that for evil. God meant it for good. 2 Samuel 17 demonstrates that God thwarted the counsel of Absalom's advisor, Ahithophel, to secure the safety of David's retreat. The crucifixion of Jesus constitutes the foremost New Testament example of God's sovereignty in the face of evil. Acts 4 depicts the monstrous evil of, of, God, of Jesus' crucifixion as under God's sovereign control. A third element in the Christian approach to history is that God uses pagan nations to accomplish his ends. When Jeremiah warned Judah that God was about to judge them for their spiritual adultery, he showed God summoning Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls him my servant. In Jeremiah 27, the God declares that all nations shall serve him, his son, his grandson, until the time his own land has come, referring to Nebuchadnezzar. When Isaiah prophesied the coming liberation of the exiles from captivity, he prophetically named the Persian ruler Cyrus as the one to effect that liberation. God says of Cyrus, he is my servant, he will perform all my desire whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him. The Bible strips away the surface of history and reveals the transcendent, sovereign God moving history his way. Finally, the Christian approach to history focuses on the principle of justice. When he uses a pagan nation to accomplish his ends, as he did in choosing Babylon to judge Judah, his justice demands that that nation likewise be judged. That's why we see in Jeremiah 50 God calling the nations to bring judgment against Babylon. When the nation God raised up to accomplish his purposes is done, he judges that nation righteously and justly. Rarely today can you and I approach the world events that are unfolding before us with the certainty of Jeremiah. But we can gain a principle that produces confidence and certainty. God stands above the line of history as the sovereign, Our assurance is that he controls all that occurs along that line for his glorious purposes. There's no geographical refuge that can guarantee such security. That comes only from faith and trust in Jesus. Genuine biblical Christianity is a holistic worldview that provides the answers to the key questions of life. It is now under severe attack. This postmodern and secular world sees biblical Christianity as the only major worldview that they stand against. Christianity is articulating a set of eth- ethical absolutes. That's why it is the enemy of pluralism and relativism. There is a clear articulation of the major tenets of biblical Christianity in this perspective. It offers hope, it offers certainty, and it offers confidence. Without Seeing Christianity as a genuine, biblically-centered worldview, we lose much. But as we study, as we hear the messages from our pastor, as we read the Scriptures ourselves, we're able to put together a full-orbed, complete, well-integrated worldview. There's always tension. There's always a mystery. There's always uncertainty. But our trust and faith is in God. It is he who is accomplishing his purposes. And our trust and our faith and our confidence is in him. May you take seriously this proposition that not only Christianity is a personal relationship with the living God, it is a complete worldview that enables us to have the mind of Christ as we live in this very dark world.